Welcome to my podcast, Masterpiece and Mess. And this is your host, Madeline Wright. Here we explore unedited stories and journeys of growth, greater self-expression, and better well-being. Our stories can often be painful and less than perfect, and yet that is where the true power of storytelling lies, in the folly and bewilderment, to quote Hermann Hesse. This podcast is for honest conversations that are steeped in vulnerability and growth, hopefully creating a space for more honesty, more compassion, and a mirror in which to view ourselves as the masterpieces in the making that we all are, despite our messiness. Welcome to today's episode of Masterpiece and Mess. Today, my guest is Anthony Osler. You may know Anthony from his three books, Mizanzi Zen, Zen Dust, and Stoop Zen, published by Jakarta Media. Anthony and his wife, Margie, run a retreat center in the Karoo. Anthony received Inca teacher transmission from Zen master Dei Gak of Furnace Mountain. He has been a student of Buddhism since the early 1970s. He ordained as a Zen monk with the late Sasaki Roshi and studied under two late Korean Zen masters, Sung Sang and Su Bong. He was formerly an advocate of the high court, an arbitrator and acting judge, and in 2016 received the Chancellor's Medal from the University of the Free State for exceptional service to South Africa. Welcome to this episode of Masterpiece and Mess, Anthony. It's such a privilege to have you here. <laughs> Thank you, Marlene. <laughs> That's quite an introduction. I've forgotten about most of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so lovely to have you, Anthony. Can I dive right in with my first question? Mm, please, please do. Anthony, um, I have two of your beautiful books. Unfortunately, not the third one, but it's on my wish list. And I really love your writing. You have a way of making your words become a profound portal to the art of becoming awake to the privilege and magic of being alive, as well as showing a way for the reader to cultivate more mindfulness and appreciation of the ordinary and mundane rhythm of life. Was this your intention when you wrote the books? Yes, that's a lovely description. I'm sure it's better than what's in the book. I think what I <laughs> what I felt really was that I'd run out of books to read, books on Zen specifically, uh, books on uh, on this life, and I thought, well, then I better write the book that I'd like to read. So that's really what I did. Mm. And, and uh, I just found that, that I had a, a good feeling for it. Uh, one of the things I love about writing is that it gives me an excuse for lots of solitude. Mm. You know, you can always say, oh, I need to be on my own today, um, meaning you need to sort of suck your pencil and stare into space, and that counts as, as work. You know? So I enjoy that little excuse. That's lovely. So, so the first thing was I, I wanted to write a book that was one I'd like to read. And secondly, I just enjoy writing. Uh, I also felt that it was important to 
to be real about our life in South Africa, that, it's, that I'm not pretending that we live uh, in a, some idyllic paradise or some hell of purgatory, but that I wanted to find uh, a meaningful life right here where, where we are with all its, its incredible difficulties and, 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 uh, and delights, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I felt that I, I needed to bring out this impossible and beautiful place. Mm. And we need to find whatever we call our enlightenment or our meaningfulness uh, or um, what's your beautiful phrase, uh, mess and masterpiece. We need to find the masterpiece here with the the paints that we have on the sort of canvas that we have um, yeah. and not pretend to copy anybody else or feel that we are not somehow worthy because we live here uh, in an unfashionable place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it is an ongoing um, practice for me to also harness and accept the contrasting states of living in this country um, and to see the beauty, appreciate the beauty and be fully present for all of the rest, all of all of the parts that are some are difficult and some are so beautiful. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think we need to be real. Um, uh, but, but real, not in a sort of slightly negative way that people sometimes say, oh, get a real life or whatever it means. Uh, I think being real here means exactly what you said, that we, that we connect uninhibitedly with what is beautiful here, and we connect uninhibitedly with what is difficult. Um, in our persons, in our societies, in our groups, um, so, so that so that w w I think what what we perhaps just to use the word real again and look at that, um, people think of reality as this political reality, for instance, or current affairs, where we are just swamped by opinions and contestation and prejudice and, and, and anger or regret or shame or whatever it is that's floating around. Actually, it doesn't feel like it's floating, sort of whizzing about uh, that that is the kind of real world. But I think one of the things that we, we find as we begin doing the kind of work that you do, uh, looking at the mess of us and the masterpiece of us. But when we do that, we begin to see that there's more to reality than just politics and prejudice uh, and so on. And that uh, in a sense, our reality is greater than it's often considered to be. That we don't have to take a political standpoint or a religious standpoint or a standpoint on anything particularly. 
We need to, there's something wider waiting for us to engage with it. And to do that in a sense, uh, so it feels to me, that we have to disengage with the kind of self-life that is always anxious and contestatious and, and sorry, I, there's probably not even a word in the dictionary, but you know the feeling of it. That mm. um, somehow there's a, a greater reality that we uh, need to be willing to be part of. And to do that, we have to somehow uh, soften or subdue the voices that are so loud around us and so yeah. endlessly busy and, and anxious making. Yeah. Wow, that's a really beautiful answer. Would you say that that softening to those anxious voices, um, that is that, and I'm, I don't want to put words on your mouth, I'm just curious, is that what drew you initially to, to study Buddhism? I, I suppose so. If, if, I, if I look back, whether it was articulated by me in that way, then I, I, I have a strong doubt. Uh, like most of my life, it, it sort of appeared ex, somewhat by accident, uh, or so it felt. Um, I made my first connection with Buddhism by coming across, again, quite uh, accidentally, coming across a, a group of young Tibetan Buddhist monks. And, and they entranced me. They were, they were playful and lighthearted and wiggly and, and silly and, and all of that. And when they weren't being that, they were able to be, to be very severe, very, you know, severe is not quite the right word. Um, they were able to be very focused and very uh, clear. And so they were able to take part in these lengthy Tibetan rituals and so on. And during their breaks, they would muck about and throw balls and tackle each other and do what young boys do. Um, it, it was more the quality of that, I think, that that struck me. I think that that was certainly part of it. And then when I started asking questions uh, about, for instance, what did I need to believe? What sort of person did I have to be? They said, I didn't have to be a nice person or a good person or a person who was able to sit still for a long time. I just had to be myself. And I didn't have to believe anything. I didn't have to, to sign up to a creed before I could join the club. I had to come with all my uh, lack of confidence, my sense of, of not being particularly worthy. And, and that was enough. And uh, so it was a place of no judgment, and I really appreciated that, you know. Yeah. 
<laughs> How beautiful. I find, um, yeah, the journey towards understanding my purpose here in this life and um, the meaning of being here um, is also a journey that means I need to keep stripping away some of the conditioning and I actually become more myself <laughs> and just be, mm. just be mm. in the moment. And what I hear from that story about the monks um, and the advice that they gave you is just to be yourself and how they could be so playful and in the moment and just be, yeah, it's very inspiring. I, I think what, what uh, yeah, uh, it, it was inspiring. Um, and, and then I, I realized that there were various aspects to the path. Uh, one was just the question of finding people or a lifestyle that, that really did inspire me and that gave me the kind of commitment that enabled me to do the hard work. So there was also that aspect of hard work. And I, th I think uh, anyone familiar with sort of meditation type practices and, and uh, what we'd call internal work or inner work um, knows that sometimes it's uncomfortable uh, emotionally, as it were. Uh, sometimes we have to give up our, our, our darlings, as they say in writing, have to let go of your darlings, all those great little words that you held on to uh, that didn't quite fit anymore. So the willingness to, to do that, to be uncomfortable in that way, and sometimes um, just the physical discomfort of the, of the discipline of sitting still when really you, you don't, uh, you would rather you were doing something else. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, in, in a way, part of uh, a monk's life, that the, the discipline or the, the daily schedule is, is austere, you know. You, you get up at three o'clock in the morning and you sit on retreat anyway for many hours of the day and your body is aching your legs aching, your back's aching, your mind's aching. And you do need some kind of commitment behind it to just say, okay, whatever it brings, here I am. Oh. And sometimes one really loses one's sense of humor about things. <laughs> and that's the most difficult. And but but that's how inspiration works to me. Some Something just strikes me, and I have that that surge, as it were, of, of energy and a sense of well-being, an instinctive, an instinctive response to something or somebody, and that's what gives one the energy to make that kind of commitment to go into uncomfortable places or to take on the, the, the discipline that's necessary. To, um, to, to allow that seed to grow. Yeah. 
Yeah, because there's always the temptation to say, oh, this doesn't feel comfortable enough now. I'll, I'll do it differently. I'll do it the way that I want to. And <clears throat> sometimes th that doesn't work. And sometimes it's, it's just a way that we surreptitiously reinforce the things that, that we need to look at most. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Anthony, can I ask you, um, so me just being an ordinary person, um, you know, with a job and two young children, I realize that there's such a need to have a structure, a framework in my life, some form of practice to be the baseline or the platform for when I do when things fall apart, when I fall apart, which happens. <laughs> um, and can an ordinary person like me practice, have a Zen practice, um, like a fairly disciplined Zen practice, and still weave that into ordinary life, would you say? Yes, it, it, it must be. Uh, otherwise, it isn't Zen practice. If Zen practice can't speak to you where you are in your quote unquote ordinary life, uh, then it isn't Zen practice. It's some fantasy that we're involved with. And uh, I can't really answer from that. I can only answer from myself as a person just as ordinary as you, you know. And so. There are a couple of threads to, to the question. I'm thinking of where to reach out for. But I, I think, first of all, the, the, the sense of oneself as, as ordinary in a slightly uh, self-deprecatory self, self uh, meaning of that word. Um, I think that, that that's part of it, that we, we do come with a kind of uh, humility as it were and i think in a way that's quite necessary we come saying well i'm you know i'm this as you put it a mess yes here i am i uh, i i am this mess i recognize that i use words to describe myself like ordinary or useless or mess or whatever uh, and in a way although one sort of jokes about it it's i think a necessary part of a part of of it that we come with some kind of humility yeah. um otherwise we probably wouldn't start we'd wait till we get knocked down further on the line um in terms of of having uh, a kind of a, what we call a zen practice and by this i don't mean uh that Zen has to be anybody's way. It's the vocabulary that I have, it's the tradition that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for in a way, I'm speaking from. But I don't for a moment think that this is the only way to find meaning in one's life. That's another thread of that question. Yeah. Um, in terms of one's own life, I, I think, I mean, one option, of course, is to go to Zen retreats or 
retreats of some kind, learn to meditate, take on a daily discipline, and so on. Um, and most certainly that is helpful. Uh, I'm sure that's helpful. So, for instance, taking up a daily uh, routine, saying, I'm going to sit and meditate at a certain time every morning, uh, kids willing, um, or something like that. I'm going to attend a, a Zoom here, or I'm going to subscribe to this course, or join a group. Uh, all of those things are, are worth trying. And I think sometimes one just has to try, and sometimes you find it isn't really, doesn't really uh, resonate with you. But the fact that you're actually making a, a certain kind of effort, I think, I think that's important. I do think that meeting other people and talking to them about the same kind of thing is helpful, joining a group in that way. And it may be that you find a group either online or even better, uh, a, a group that you can meet in person where you can sit together and meditate or talk about things that, that are important for you. I think that helps. Yeah. I think behind that, what's even uh, more exciting, that, that's, a, that's a kind of tool that we use, a daily discipline. To it, it just gives us a little bit of structure, and it says something about how important this question is for us. Hmm. But, but I think behind that is such an interesting thing, which is, which is in a way the real work, that you take this practice and say, all right, it's not just limited to doing yoga for an hour a day or meeting once a week with people to meditate or something. It's actually finding that kind of activity inside this ordinariness of my own life, as you said. You've got children. Um, I don't know what age they are, but I presume they're still uh, young enough to keep you busy. <laughs> you know, um, that's your Zen master right there. You know, mm. uh, in a way, however much we like to read and get uh, words from elsewhere, here they are living in your own house, giving you a hard time, testing you making you laugh, making you cry, making you so tired that you think you won't survive. Yeah. There they are. There they are. So in, in one way, uh, in answering your question, it really helps to take on a discipline and a structure. And uh, as I said, it, it's a kind of mark of how important it is to us, not only for us personally, but for those around us as well. This is this is the kind of life your mother wants to live now. For half an hour, you better shut up, whatever it is. So we take on that, but the real the, the real uh, ambit of that and fullness of that practice is not limited to that time. It's it begins there, as it were, but. But here you are in your house, you know, 
your husband, your children, your neighbors, you know, your load shedding, whatever it is that you have. And then it gets very exciting. Then there's no sense of anything being outside of my Zen, outside of my spiritual life or my inner work, whatever you call it. Yeah. And, and, then, and then you find out that this is a whole life's work. Wow. It doesn't. It doesn't end. It just changes all the time as we change. You know? <laughs> well, you articulate that so well. That our practice is in every moment, and every person that's significant to us is probably a Zen master. My children are my Zen master. I love that. Yeah, it's <laughs> difficult like Zen masters are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> it's the yeah. hardest thing I'll ever do. Oh, that's so beautiful. Hard. Thank you so much, yeah. Anthony. And, and that's your great work. I mean, what a privilege. Yeah. You know, and however difficult it is, um, there are people who would die to have that opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going to make a little gear shift now and ask you a more personal question. I'm curious about how your journey came to starting a retreat center, a Zen retreat center in the Karoo. <laughs> okay. Um... Again, when I look back over things, I, they always seem to be somewhat accidental and arbitrary, but, but here we are. So looking back and kind of drawing a line, um, uh, I, I was a, a Zen monk in the early 1980s. Um, and th that's, at least for some of us, it's a limited, it's like a training period in, in a sense. It's not a like a Catholic uh, lifelong commitment, at least in the Japanese Zen tradition I trained. Um, and when I left there, I just felt that I wanted to live in a place that was extraordinary, I think, and that I would like to continue my practice there. And I met Margie, my wife, uh, we met at a at a yoga session and uh, and stayed together ever since. Um, uh, we also have two young children. No, they're not young anymore. At least they don't think they're young anymore. Um, but we, we, we then moved. I, I, I needed to find a way to earn a living and I'd studied law before, so I went to the bar, a legal bar. I became an advocate. And then I, I was lucky enough at that time to, to get involved in what we call human rights work. There was a lot of, sort of politically related work at that time in the, in the mid 1980s and late 1980s. And I then started, uh, I'd had a, a family connection with the Karoo 
So that was already a, a kind of a, a, a door that I could perhaps choose to open if, if I found the right uh, way to do it. And I set up an office, uh, a rural office for uh, human rights work in the Karoo. It's called the Karoo Law Clinic, Karoo Mobile Law Clinic. And what we would do is we, we would just listen to people essentially and and try and help there and i used the, the law as a tool as it were uh, to kind of uh, i suppose to listen and to help people in a kind of doubly disadvantaged situation they were black triply disadvantaged black poor often female and they lived in a very remote area and that combined to make their lives often terribly difficult and they needed someone to to hear them that's what i did uh, and i was able to join an organization lawyers for human rights that supported this work and we were able to employ paralegals and educational people and so on on staff and uh, so we did that work and together with that i was able to purchase a small farm uh, near colesburg and margie and i moved here we raised our children here we schooled them here well she did that of course uh, she was a teacher um, so the children grew up on the farm and we began to do that i did that work she did the homework and she did most of the farming to her surprise <laughs> and uh and then we started running retreats and at certain points we we just stopped doing that and said no our family is our practice now we'll give ourselves to that fully we can't uh, we, we need we needed to have uh, all our energy available for that as it were. and then when the girls went to school we we started running retreats again, and now uh, we have retreats almost on a continuous basis. Um, we don't see it as a Zen center. We see it more as just a place of practice that people can come, take that opportunity, and uh, and go back to their lives, really, for most part. So we don't have a, a resident community here. We have people who come for various lengths of time, you know, to, to do retreat work. Yeah. Amazing. I can't even remember the original question. I think it was, well, how did I get here? <laughs> yes. How did you end up running or starting a Zen retreat center? That was the question, but you answered it beautifully. Thank you. And I'm wondering, so people can come for any length of time, however long they can come for. So there's no particular sort of retreat package or structure or program that you offer. People come and then they just um, fall in with a daily practice, which you and Margie then guide them through. Can you tell me a little bit more sort of like, like what um, one can expect on a daily basis at on retreat with you? Okay. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's a bit of both. Sometimes it's more structured, sometimes less. 
So the, the more structured ones are what we call formal Zen re retreats. People come in a group and we, we do various kind of Zen style medi meditation practices. Sometimes it's sitting on cushions in silence. Sometimes we do traditional Zen things, bowing, chanting. Uh, we do a lot of manual work. And th that, that's the style of it. Uh, we walk in the felt as a group. Um, we do various activities, but it's quite contained. It's quite disciplined and people work together as a group. Um, they last for about a week. That's, that's the style and they are scheduled. We have a website. Those kind of dates are set and people can book. Outside of that, we have what we call Feltzen, which is kind of the wider version of Stupzen, um, which is what we're doing at the moment, where we do meditation practice in the morning and meditation practice in the evening. And then the rest of the day is unstructured. And that's then an opportunity for people to um, do more meditation if they want. They can go hiking, they can paint, they can sleep. And some people come here just needing a rest, you know, yeah. uh, young, young mothers. Um, or they might want to do more yoga. They perhaps come with friends. They, they do yoga. Um, they do Tai Chi. They do that sort of thing. And we encourage uh, people to really make use of this environment because it is quite uh, unique, unbuilt. Uh, there's no traffic, and no buildings, and no people, really. Uh, and to to take that opportunity and see how you can learn to live inside an environment that's quite simple, you know, and so to to learn to make walking uh, in the felt a form of meditation, to sit on rocks, to look out over the sunset, and so on, to make that part of our meditation, so that our definition of meditation goes beyond the zendo or the meditation hall into our felt into streams and into this enormous sky mm. you know just as you would in your situation include your your garden your children you know your family so here um, there's there's a kind of basic assumption that we need to live our Zen where we are. Yeah. And here it happens to be the Karoo environment, which for many people is itself a kind of a, a healing and just a big breath of sky and earth, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, in part, we, we take quite a formal, uh, we offer formal practice, what we call formal Zen practice, and in part, it's for people who, who don't particularly want to do that or choose not to do that, but to have something where they're taking responsibility for their own lives most of the day. But there's a support at each end of, of, of the daytime. 
Yeah. And if if they want to ask questions about Zen, or we have meetings in a more formal way inside of that, uh, they can ask for that. Sounds like amazing experiences. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that with us. And thank you for also, again, the reminder how we can weave our mindfulness practice, whether that's a Zen practice or any other um, discipline that we want to incorporate into our lives, which is so important for me. I know that structure and framework is so important to have that and as a baseline. Um, and then let that flow and permeate every moment and every relationship and how we view the world through that lens of being present and yeah. And the career is a very special place, right? Yes, it is. Oh, it's wonderful. Something really, really amazing energy there. Yeah. I, I you know, we, we, I've only come across load shedding recently when uh, we had to go to Cape Town for a family event. Uh, and how I realize how difficult it is for, for so many people. Um, and by contrast, how privileged we are. We draw our water from the windmill. We have a solar power system here. And, and we have all this space. And and we live uh, in this environment. And I think what's lovely for me, uh, I'm just going off on a tangent now, uh, but they all feel part of part of what you're saying. <laughs> um, that we we don't live here as tourists. We don't live here trying to find a picture postcard version of life. Um, just the same with children, you, you know, you can, you've got the family pictures on the mantelpiece, but the reality is, is always changing and is much more alive. Uh, in the same way here, um, it's people romanticize the Karoo and, and I can see why I do. But in addition, or perhaps inside of that is a, is the lived reality that's often very uncomfortable. It gets terribly hot, it gets terribly windy, and it gets frightfully cold. We go down to minus 14, 15 yeah. during winter, and, and it's cold. But there's something, if one's willing to live inside of all that, then the discomfort is not something we have to avoid but it's rather something that we have to make part of our life. Just as in South Africa, there are, there are things that are uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable, and they should be uncomfortable. And accepting that seems to be part of giving our life some resilience and some kind of, uh, gutsiness and 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 for me it feels that unless i'm willing to do that i'm always kind of slightly fearful 
of the discomfort, of the challenge, of the danger um, of, of our life here. And, and of my inner exploration as well, that if I'm, as you said at the beginning, if we're not willing to somehow um, expose ourselves to the risk of uh, disappointment in some way or challenge, um, then we end up always on the outside, uh, mm. tourists in our own existence. And that feels to me more, more frightening than, than anything. Anthony, you have to say that again. That was so beautiful. So unless we are willing to expose <laughs> ourselves, I say that again. That is really, really cool. Yeah. I don't know if I didn't even, unless we're willing to expose ourselves to the risk of, of um, being uncomfortable uh, in our own life, um, then we, we are doomed to being standing outside of our lives. And that frightens me more than, than anything. The, the prospect of of not being alive in my life is more frightening to me than, than, the, than the dangers that I'm reminded of constantly. Yeah. Uh, I didn't find the words again, but that's how words are. That's, well, yeah, but that's, just, uh, that's an incredibly important reminder for me is to step into the discomfort rather that than, than run away, avoid, um, try and protect, you know, trying to build safety around myself, which never works anyway. Yes. Um, but rather just step right into it. Yes, yes. That's the only sane and meaningful answer that we can find. <laughs> but I think that's so yes. beautiful. You've, you've really articulated that beautifully. And we can listen back to it. We've recorded this, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'd like to hear that. Mm. And, and yes, I, 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 I'm fearful of an air-conditioned life. Mm. That's how it feels to me, because there's always an anxiety in that. The more I try and make my life uh, pretty, the, the the more fragile, more. Fragile is not the word. Um, there's another word I'm looking for. Um, brittle. The more brittle uh, and vulnerable it feels, actually, and there's an undertone of of anxiety that that starts to permeate things. Um, yeah. yeah. Another. <laughs> um, yeah, that one. <laughs> that was also very well <laughs> explained. Yeah. And see, this is, I think we've, you've already given the listeners and me so much. I, for one, um, I'm determined to come and visit you and Margie at your retreat center one day and an experience. I think I will go for the felt Zen retreat. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yes. And I'm going to leave the listeners. I thank you so much for being here. I'm so privileged. I feel so privileged to have had this conversation with you. Your books 
or an ongoing gift in my life. I can just pick one up anytime. And there's always, that's the beauty about your books. You just open it and there's something there for you. And what it usually does is just reminds me to be here now in this moment. And you write so beautifully. So thank you for those gifts you've gifted us with. Um, I'm going to be sharing um, your uh, website in the in the notes of the podcast once I've posted it so people will be able to get in touch with you um, and I hope you have a, a beautiful day ahead and I look forward to staying in touch with you thank you so much this has been a lovely chat I always get a little nervous and you've made me feel very comfortable and uh, quite excited thank you I, I should say that the books have run out of print and we're in discussion with the publishers to try and make sure there are more copies. So, so this kind of encouragement, I'll tell them all about this conversation too. Yes. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. I'll so share much. it with them too. Thank you so much, Anthony. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> what a beautiful hour spent with Anthony Osler. To me, what really stood out from this conversation is that there is far more to reality than what we perceive and how important it is to have a mindful practice in place that helps us to open to a wider and deeper consciousness where we can strip away our conditioning and our anxious thoughts to be more present and more awake to the magnificence of the mundane and ordinary moments of being alive. Also an important reminder for me specifically was that everyone and every moment is my teacher. If you found this episode valuable, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast or share this episode with friends. Thank you for listening. <laughs>